Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You ever feel like your vacation rental since empty too often? Missing out on potential income? Look, you're not alone. Many property owners struggle with underperforming bookings and the complexities of property management. But here's some good news. Vacasa outperforms other property managers in 92% of the markets they operate. They've helped homeowners like you increase their bookings by an average of 24%, turning those empty days into profitable opportunities. Want to see what your earnings could look like with Vacasa? Visit biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, and get a free personalized income estimate today. That's biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. Hey everyone, welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer, and today is going to be one of those episodes where I fanboy a little bit. We have an economist who I've been following for many years and is one of the more respected, reputable economists in the country, Mark Zandi from Moody's Analytics. He's been covering the housing market and economics for Moody's, which if you don't know, we've had a couple of their guests on. It's just a big analytics economics firm that does a lot of original research. Um, And Mark is one of their lead economists. And today we go into an incredible conversation with him about all sorts of things. We start and talk about the banking crisis and Mark provides some really helpful, insightful uh, information about what is going on, why certain banks are at risk and other banks aren't, if he thinks this is going to spread, what he makes of the government intervention. And then we get into a really good conversation about how this is going to impact the economy as a whole, whether we might go into a recession. And of course, at the end, we talk a lot about how the banking crisis, and yes, it is still unfolding, but based on what we know right now about the banking crisis, if and how that is going to impact both the residential and commercial real estate market. So this is one of my favorite shows we've done. Mark is really makes complex economic information really easy to understand, and he really does a great job shedding light on the particular strange economic climate that we're in today. So we're going to take a quick break and and then we're going to get into our interview with Mark Zandi, who is the chief economist of Moody's Analytics. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. I'm curious, have you been struggling to keep your vacation rental booked? I totally get it. It's tough to manage and keep filled. But we found something that really works. It's called Vacasa. They've seriously changed the game for a lot of the BP audience. In almost every market they're in, Vacasa manages to fill up the calendar more than anyone else. And get this, the average Vacasa user sees about 24% more bookings than with other managers. That's a lot of extra income. Curious to see what you could be earning? You can get a personalized income estimate right there. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what Vacasa can do for you. Check out biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. Mark Zandi, welcome to On The Market. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure, Dave. Thanks for having me. 
Well, I hope you're not too tired of talking about the banking crisis just yet, because that is what we are hoping to pick your brain about. No, you know, that's not all that anyone wants to talk to uh, talk about, including my <laughs> uh, 90-year-old dad and mother-in-law. So uh, it's the top of mind for sure. Well, yeah, I think that's true for myself and for a lot of our listeners. And we did do a show last week sort of talking about what happened specifically at Silicon Valley Bank and what some of the decisions and macroeconomic factors that led to that. But I was hoping to just talk to you in general about the U.S. banking system right mm. now and how much risk you see in the overall sector. Well, in general, I feel pretty good about it, right? Uh, because of the post-financial crisis reforms, uh, the, the banking system in aggregate has lots of capital. Capital is the cushion, the cash cushion that banks have to digest any losses that they might suffer on their loans and securities. And it's records amounts of capital, particularly for the big guys, you know, the so-called GSIBs, the globally systemically important banks. They got capital everywhere. Plenty of liquidity, you know, generally, um, and uh, pretty good risk management. So credit quality is excellent. I mean, if you look at delinquency and in, in the charge-off rates, uh, they're very low. They're starting to push up a bit, and they're getting a little worrisome for bank cards and unsecured personal lines, which we can talk about. But generally speaking, the quality is, is good. So, you know, I would have said the system's in very good shape coming into this. Now, obviously, it's under a lot of stress, you know, given the increase in interest rates, uh, which have been very significant over the past year, and given the shape of the yield curve, that's the difference between long and short rates, because that's what determines banks' net interest margins, their profitability. They are under pressure, uh, and uh, you can see that in the, the banking crisis that we're suffering now. But generally speaking, uh, the banking system is uh, in good shape, uh, about as good as I've seen it, uh, you know, coming into a period like this. That's really helpful context because it doesn't necessarily feel like that. And I yeah. want to ask uh, ask a, a follow-up question about that. But first I wanted to ask, you said something about GSIBs, which uh, everyone is probably learning this acronym all at once. Globally systemic, uh, global systemically important banks. Yep. Um, you said that they are in particularly good shape. Is there a reason why some of these smaller and mid-tier banks are seeing, you know, particularly their stocks decline or have a, at least a higher perceived risk than these GSIBs, which I think for our audience are huge banks like Chase and Wells Fargo and Bank of America kind of banks? Yeah. Uh, one of the big differences is uh, just the, um, the amount of capital and liquidity they hold. Because the GSIBs were deemed to be systemically important, meaning if they fail, they're going to take out the entire system. Regulation post-financial crisis, Dodd-Frank is the legislation that was passed in 2010, requires those big guys to hold a boatload of capital. I mean, just to give you context, you add up all the capital. Again, that's that cash cushion I mentioned earlier. It's over 20% of their assets. That's more than double what it was before the financial crisis. So those guys are, you know, almost financially meteor proof. I mean, they were because we're so worried about them going under. The little guys, not so much. And in fact, some of those Dodd Frank reforms that were put into place back in 2010 were rolled back for institutions that were uh, less than 250 billion dollars in assets. Silicon Valley Bank grew from a $50 billion to a $200 billion bank you know, very, very quickly. So they never got into that tougher regulatory regime. So they had less capital, less, obviously, liquidity, less, less oversight, regulatory oversight. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to learn more exactly what happened here in you know, a good root cause analysis. But you know, at core, because uh, they didn't have the capital and liquidity, they were more vulnerable to the kind of the bank runs that, you know, they're, they're suffering and why, why they failed. Uh, so they just didn't have the same resources, you know, the, the big guys had and the same kind of rock solid, you know, uh, underpinnings to their finances that the, the big guys uh, have in, in large part because of the changes after the financial uh, crisis back a little over a decade ago. Great. That, that's super helpful. Yeah. And I think it, it helps our audience understand why certain types of banks are seeing uh, more risk and more fear surrounding them than others. You made some great points about why the banking system itself is in relatively good shape. Can you help us square the situation we're in then? If the banking system is in relatively good shape, why are we seeing banks fail? And I think we, you know, we've talked about that a little bit on this show, but 
Why is there continuing risk and fear about the banking system right now? Well, the banks have failed or very, what I call idiosyncratic, right? There's been three failures of Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and uh, Silvergate. Uh, Silvergate failed a few weeks ago. Silvergate and uh, Signature, they're, they're just crypto banks. I mean, they cater to the crypto craze which was highly speculative, you know, lots of warnings about that market for a long time. Not surprising it crashed and it, you know, took out those two banks because they're so intimately tied up in what was going on in the crypto market. In the case of Silicon Valley Bank, they're tied into the tech sector. And as we all know, the tech sector is under a lot of pressure for lots of different reasons. You know, you even saw today Amazon you know, laid off another 9,000 people. So the tech sector is under a lot of pressure, especially the small startup tech companies, right? Because, you know, they need capital to keep going because they run uh, cash flow negative. You know, they're, they're burning through cash. So they need constant, you know, new equity raises, new debt raises, new, new, ca new capital to function. And when the tech sector hit the skids, they, they couldn't go out and raise more capital. And so they were, you know, uh, increasingly vulnerable. Uh, their deposits were starting to run down and making the bank increasingly more vulnerable. So I think SVB is just more Silicon Valley Bank. I just, I'll use that going forward. It's just a lot easier to say. Uh, you know, was really tied into the tech uh, sector and got, you know, nailed by the, the tech bust. More broadly, there is, a, a, you know, the vulnerability is – the fact that interest rates did rise a lot, and, and what happened was with those rising rates, it makes the value of the treasury bonds and mortgage securities that all banks own worth less. So, you know, if a bank is in a position where they have to come up with cash to pay off a depositor and have to sell those securities and they haven't hedged, you know, that risk, meaning they haven't offloaded that risk in, into the marketplace for a cost – then they're at, they're vulnerable, right? Because they need the cash. They can't. They're, they're selling these securities at a loss and taking big losses, and they may not be able to fill the hole. So uh, the system as a whole, that's where the vulnerability is. But I, I think, in general, again, going back to my original point, I think that risk is generally manageable across the system. It's not. It's, this is not at all a surprise. You know, this was you know well understood, and most banks are very careful about their so-called asset liability management. That's what this is. And hedged a lot of that you know, risk. So I don't view the banking system writ large at significant risk of that threat. But that's the one vulnerability that it has. And the other banks that have failed, they're, again, you know, very idiosyncratic, tied into what's going on with crypto and, and tech. In addition to the, the risk that you just cited of, of the value of some of these assets and securities going down, what risk of panic is there? Because it seems to me that a lot of the risk comes from human behavior and psychology and not necessarily the bank's balance sheets. Yeah, that's a great point. And that may be something that's different this time than in times past that, you know, people, not that human nature has changed that, that as we know, Dave, that never changes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that never changes. That stays the same. And people are always, you know, subject to these kinds of concerns. The bank, you remember your Jimmy Stewart, Wonderful Life, you know, bank runs have been around from since the beginning of time, since the beginning of banks. Someone else was talking to me about that. It's a wonderful life. A great movie. If only George were there to, to solve the bank run, only, we'd all be okay. If only it was here. <laughs> yeah, if only. So uh, that that's the that's the same. But what, what makes this time a little bit um, different, uh, maybe more than a little bit different, is how quickly people's concerns can get amplified through social media. And that kind of sort of what happened here with the case of Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, there's, you know, lots of stories about, you know, some of the investors and depositors and, and uh, customers of the bank, you know, uh, uh, publicly tweeting out that they, they're getting out and anyone who has anything to do with the bank should get the hell out. Well, excuse me, get out. And, and I'm sure they said it in stronger terms. And, you know, that went uh, – Viral, and so you amplify these kind of concerns and risks. You go back to 1932 and that bank run, Jimmy Stewart, Wonderful Life. You know, you just you obviously didn't have any of that, right? I mean, it was a community that kind of the angst fed on itself, not kind of a global, you know, social media platform <laughs> amplifying these concerns. So that raises some interesting questions about the future and sort of how we have to think about the uh, these bank runs and what. Uh, 
regulation needs to be put in place to alleviate the potential risk posed by uh, these bank runs in the, of the future that are again amplified by social media. I'm not sure I have an answer to that question, but that's a, that's a that's a question I think we should start asking ourselves. You know, going forward, maybe because of social media and just the amplification of these worries, uh, we're going to see more bank runs in the future than we have historically, at least since deposit insurance were put on the planet back in the 30s. That that makes a lot of sense about the social media uh, component. And one of the things I've, I've been wondering about is I have limited but some experience um, in the startup and venture capital world. And it seems to me that part of the issue here was just the nature of how those businesses, investors work together, where these startups get all their money from a very pretty small investor pool. I mean, there are probably hundreds or thousands of venture capital companies, but not, you know, a lot, the, the big influential ones there, you know, there are several dozen and they have so much power in that scenario where, you know, maybe a couple of dozens of venture capitalists can send out emails telling companies that have billions of dollars worth of deposits to withdraw their capital. And I can't think of any other industry that has that type of power concentrated in just such a small amount of people. But to your point, that plus uh, social media just creates this weird scenario where panic can, can spread so quickly. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, again, it goes back to my point that it feels, I keep using the word idiosyncratic. It, it, it's just unique. It's different. It's not your tradition. It's not your mother's and father's bank. It's a very tra- untraditional bank with a very different set of customers, uh, the, you know, and uh, with their you know own uh, kind of issues that, you know, created this, uh, I think, this uh, situation that we find ourselves in. Yeah, absolutely. So I know you have no crystal ball, but I do have to ask. I've got three, by the way, Dave. No, I didn't say they were. I don't know if they were, <laughs> they but I got three yeah. of them. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm curious what you think will happen from here. You know, the government has obviously stepped in. A few different agencies have um, stepped in to try and stem the crisis. Do you think what so far the Fed and the FDIC has done to... Um, reassure depositors is enough or do you think there's more uncertainty and potentially more bank failures or an extension of this crisis in our future? Well, I think the policy response has been impressive, you know, massive, very different from what happened in the financial crisis. It took a long time for policymakers, the Fed, the FDIC, the Bush administration at the time to kind of kick in the gear in, in part because they, you know, they, they didn't, they hadn't experienced anything since the 1930s like that. And so they just you know, it was just all new. Uh, but this go around, very aggressive response, you know, guaranteeing the deposits of all depositors, small and big, in the institutions that failed. And I, in my sense is, if not explicitly, implicitly suggesting that if another failure occurs, those depositors will be made whole, again, small and big, in the current environment where they're concerned about systemic risk and, and bank runs. The Fed set up a credit facility uh, to uh, provide liquidity to the banks. You know, those treasury mortgage securities I talked about earlier, uh, they're sitting on the balance sheet of the banks at a, at a loss because of the run-up in interest rates. They can, The banks can go to the Fed, post those treasuries and mortgages at, as collateral for a loan at par so that as if they're not uh, have not lost any value. They got to pay a high interest rate for that, but you know that's that's no big deal. I mean, to meet deposit demands, um, and of course the uh, uh, government has stepped in to resolve the weak links in the system, uh, either through shutting down institutions. We've talked about SVB and Silvergate and, and Signature, or uh, you know merging uh, that's uh, uh, weakened institutions into stronger ones. That we did, what we saw over the weekend when. Uh, UBS, the big Swiss bank, took over uh, Credit Suisse, the troubled bank, which was troubled well before all this mess, but got pushed over because of this mess. Uh, and then organizing other banks to come in and step up and help uh, banks that are in trouble. Uh, that would be the first Republic case. So the government is taking very aggressive steps to kind of take those idiosyncratic weak links out of the system, putting them over there so that people feel comfortable that the bank that they're doing business with uh, is money good and they're going to get their deposit out. So I feel very good about that. It, you know, there are other, 
if I were king for the day, there's a few other things that I kind of be thinking about. Like there's a big decision the Fed's got to make, you know, here in a couple of days around interest rates. And I, you know, I, there, there's a reasonable probability they're going to raise rates another quarter point, which I just don't get, you know, in the context of this banking crisis. I mean, you know, one week you're setting up a credit facility to provide liquidity to help take pressure off the banks. And then the next week you're going to raise interest rates, which will put pressure on the banks. I, I, you know, I have a hard time squaring that circle. So if I were, you know, on that, on the Fed, I might have a, well, we'll have to see what they do. Uh, but, you know, I fear they're going to raise rates. In my view, that would be a mistake, but l- let's see what they actually end up doing here. Uh, and also, um, in terms of the guarantee uh, provided to depositors, you know, that's institution by institution right now. It's not a blanket, you know, if someone fails, those depositors are going to get uh, a guarantee by the government. I'm not so sure I would have done that I, in the current context. Again, I think this is a, an environment where bank runs are very, uh, you know, very possible, and you want to make people very confident. I would have just said, you know, in this systemic environment, and I, I labeling this a systemic environment. It's temporary, but here we are. I will guarantee all deposits of any failed institution, just to put anyone's, you know, mind at rest. My 93 year old mother in law's mind at rest. I mean, why, why not? Just come on, just do that. And then we get to the other side of the crisis, then you get rid of that systemic uh, risk uh, exemption and you move on. So there's things I would do on the margin that are different, but but in the grand scheme of things, I think they've done a, a good job, a very aggressive uh, response to the to the problems. Well, uh, for everyone listening, we will know by the time this comes out. It comes we're filming recording on Monday, the Friday it comes out. We'll hear from the Fed, I think, between then. Yeah. Um, but um, just just about the deposit insurance. Um, this seems to be uh, a sort of a, a hot button issue, right? Um, people are, I think, tired. Many people seem to be tired of, quote unquote, bailing out banks. And I know you're not a politician, but can you help us understand? And I know this is a little different there. I, I watch the politicians on TV. So yeah, yeah exactly, I can play one. Yeah. I can play one. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> so I know that, you know, technically, just so everyone knows what the FDIC has done is not bailed out the shareholders of Silicon Valley Bank or the bond or the credit holders, they are making whole any depositors who had some uh, deposits at risk. Um, but can you just tell us about sort of the ec- from an economics perspective, like what is the rationalization for doing this when some people could argue that, you know, the bank was risky, they weren't doing what they should have, shouldn't have had proper risk management. Like, why are they getting some sort of special treatment and why is that necessary in the mind of the FDIC? And it sounds like you agree with it. Yeah, in the current environment, which, which is, I think we can all agree, confidence is very brittle, very, people are on edge. Again, I'm, I'm getting questions from my mother-in-law about, is, <laughs> is, her, is her CD safe? You know, that's the question I'm getting. That, that gives you a sense of the level of angst out there. Uh, you know, I think we're what I would call a, a systemic environment, meaning there is risks of bank runs of the system, uh, ca- problems cascading throughout the system and taking the entire system out. So if you if you that's a judgment call, but if you buy into that judgment, then you're saying to yourself, okay, how am I going? What's the what's the least costly way to do this so, uh, so that it doesn't cost taxpayers money or uh, cost them less? So if I bail, if I say to, yeah, okay, I'm going to make all these depositors whole of these failed institutions, the cost there is relatively small, and maybe to taxpayers directly nothing because those depositors are going to be paid out by the banks. You know, there's a deposit insurance fund. They pay into the FDIC deposit insurance fund for times like this, and that money that they pay into goes to the depositors. Now, you could say, okay, well, the banks are going to raise lending rates and lower deposit rates, and ultimately taxpayers are going to pay. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it comes out of earnings. Maybe it comes out of bank CEO pay and bonuses. I'm sure it's all (laughs) of the above. But the bigger question is, if you don't do that, back to my judgment, then you're risking the entire system. And then the cost to taxpayers is going to be measurably greater. And it's going to be a direct cost to taxpayers. It's going to overwhelm potentially the FDIC's insurance fund. So it's just a question of you know, how do I, th- this is a mess. It's, it, it. There's going to be a cost. And ha- what's the best way to resolve this and keep the cost down as, as well as possible? And in my mind, again, it's a judgment call, but in my mind, and I think in the minds of the folks that made this decision, the Treasury, the Fed, the FDIC, that, 
you know, this is the least cost way of going about doing it. And, and by as you pointed out, it's not bailing out. The shareholders getting wiped out. And if they own mm-hmm. shares in, this, in these comp- in these banks, they're getting wiped out. If they're bondholders, I don't know. We'll see. But I suspect, you know, if they're not wiped out, it's pennies on the dollar. So, you know, it's not like you're uh, the, the executives are out of they're they're gone. You know, they're they've, you know, they're, they're, they've left. They're not they're 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 not at the bank anymore. So you're not bailing those guys out. All your your if you're bailing out anyone, it's it's you and I. We're bailing each <laughs> other out. So I I'm all on board. If you want to call it a bailout, go ahead. But I'm on board with that kind of bailout. Got it. That that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Thank you for explaining that. So I want to uh, move on from the banking situation itself and sort of like the direct things that are happening there and try and understand what some of the second order implications are here. Um, First and foremost, how do you see this? You, you've told us a little bit about the Fed. You think that they shouldn't raise rates now. We'll see what happens there. How do you think this could impact the broader economy? It's negative. It's just a question of how negative. Uh, I mean, the uh, primary channel through uh, what is going on in the banking system to the economy is through uh, credit. You know, banks make loans to businesses and households. And because the banks are now under a lot of pressure uh, and scrambling, uh, they're going to be much more cautious in giving loans to banks and to uh, to uh, businesses and households. They were already uh, get, turning cautious. You know, there's a lot of nervousness about the economy and uh, recession risks, understandably so, given the high inflation and the run-up interest rates. And so if you look at lending standards, they had already started to tighten those uh, quite significantly. So loan growth hadn't really slowed a lot, but it was going to slow anyway. Now with this, the banks, you know, particularly the mid-sized and smaller banks that are under tremendous pressure are going to be much more cautious in extending out credit. Auto loans, um, you know, personal finance loans, business loans, C&I loans. Yeah, the commercial real estate market is going to take it on the chin. Uh, you know, the multifamily lenders were already struggling to get credit. You know, to start new multifamily property development. You know, later in the year, they're building now because that, those, that reflects the underwriting environment back six, twelve months, eighteen months ago. But a year from now, uh, you know, lending uh, uh, development is going to be significantly curtailed by the lack of credit, which is now only going to get worse by you know this this mess. Just to give you a context. Uh, if you're if you look at the banks that are less than 250 billion dollars in assets, let's call those mid and small banks, they account for about a half of all CNI loans, commercial industrial loans. Those are loans from banks to businesses. They account for about half of all consumer loans. That's credit cards and un- unsecured personal lines. They account for almost two thirds of CRE, commercial real estate loans. So they're they're a big deal. And if you know they're pulling back on the availability of credit, then uh, we see less lending. Less lending means less economic. Growth activity, less you know, spending, less investment, less hiring, and so it's a weight on the economy. Now, there's going to be some offset to that from the lower rates, and this goes back to the what I was talking about the Fed. I'm saying, hey, Fed, you know, given what's going on here, that's worth at least one, two, three quarter point rate hike. So why don't we just you know pause a little bit here, take a look that's around, same. see what kind of damage this does, and then inflation. You know, if it's still an issue six weeks from now, that's when you meet again. You start raising rates again. You know, but let's make sure the financial system's on solid ground. But uh, but uh, you know, we have some seen some decline in a uh, little bit on the margin in terms of mortgage rates. Not a lot, a, a little bit, not as much as you would think, given the decline in treasury yields. And we can talk yep. about that. Uh, corporate lending yields have come down, you know, ever so slightly. So maybe we get a little reflow on the interest rate side, but. The tightening and underwriting is going to overwhelm that. So the net of all of that is it's going to slow economic activity, all else being equal. I want to get to the the real estate part in just a minute, but you've been pretty vocal about what you call, I think, call a slow session. Um, And so I'd love for you to just explain that to our audience if they're not familiar with that. And I haven't heard um, since since this crisis, if you think that the banking situation has altered your changing to your your forecast of a quote-unquote slow session. Yeah, this is about the economic outlook, and the, the prevailing view at the moment is recession. You know, the economy is going to experience a broad-based, persistent decline in economic activity. I don't think that's our, necessarily our future uh, but I don't like the alternative description, soft landing. Uh, that that 
it's this isn't going to be soft as we can see this is going to be a bit harrowing you know as we come into the tarmac and so i i didn't like the the uh the the soft landing description so slow session seems to fit it's it's not a recession but it's an economy that's not going anywhere it's it's very slow sluggish kind of kind of flat line and that's the economy that i have been expecting you know to unfold here over the next 12 18 24 months uh, under any scenario uh that was before the banking crisis and i still think odds are that's what's going to happen here the economy is amazingly resilient we can talk about you know that too but i think that resilience will uh will pay off but having said that i i say it with less confidence today for sure because of the banking crisis so the odds that i'm wrong are definitively higher today than you know two weeks ago before this mess uh, occurred so i still think you know i'm not i have lowered my growth projections you know three two three four tenths of a percent in terms of real gdp growth over the next year gdp is the value of all the things we produce in a typical year you grow two percent so if you shave two three four tenths of a percent that's meaningful so you're going to feel that but it's still not to a place where we actually go into recession. But having said that, again, I, I'm not as confident. Having said that, the script is still being written, right, as we speak. So we'll have to see how this plays out. So in your mind, the slow session, we would see GDP growth, just some modest GDP growth, just under that 2% normal Yeah, maybe rate. zero to one, you know, basically going nowhere, flat, you know, flat. And in that world... You probably might see some job loss, you know, certainly no much job growth, and you would see definitely see unemployment rise. So unemployment would go from very low 3.6 to something north of 4 over the course of the next 12, 18 months. So, you know, again, that doesn't feel like a soft landing. That feel is, feels, you know, un- very uncomfortable. But, again, not a, you know, full-blown outright recession, which typically would mean we lose 5, 6 million jobs, unemployment goes to 6%. I think we can avoid that. But I say, again, with less confidence, and we're now even more vulnerable than we were before, you know, we're weaker, and if anything else comes off the, the rails, you know, any other wheel falls off, then, you know, very likely, you know, and I can think of a lot of things, debt limit is coming up here in the next few months, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things to worry about out there that could, could do us in. Yeah, that definitely. You know, there's the overwhelming media narrative that you see is, just, you know, mostly negative about the economy. In our industry, this uh, you know, people listening to this mostly in the real estate industry, it's been a, a really tough year. You know, last six to twelve months. So, curious, what are the areas of the economy that you say are resilient and that you believe will help keep this U.S. out of a recession? Well, the obvious uh, businesses don't want to lay off outside of tech. You know, the tech tech's laying off, but those folks, at least so far, they're getting hired pretty pretty quickly by the, you know other companies that have been starved for tech workers for a long time. So uh, they're not even showing up in the unemployment insurance rolls. They get laid off, and they're you know they're they're ending up somewhere else. They're not going to the UI getting unemployment insurance. Uh, and and I think it goes to the fact that uh, labor markets have been. Uh, very tight and will continue to be very tight going forward. Just demographics, the aging out of the baby boom generation, my generation, me. I'll never leave Dave, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> we need you. And, uh, you know, weaker immigration uh, for lots of reasons. Uh, and that's key to our growth in, in the labor force. So labor markets are tight. So businesses say, thinking to themselves, look, um, it's going to be real on the other side of whatever this is, recession, slow session, whatever. You know, if I if I think fast forward 18, 24 months from now, I'm going to be back to how do I find people and how do I retain people, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make that worse by laying off workers now. Now I may, and I and I, I am expecting that they hire less, right? So, you know, uh, you have natural turnover, and right now turnover is a little elevated from where it was. People have been quitting their jobs at a higher rate, although that's coming in. That creates an open position. But businesses aren't filling those open positions quickly. They're slow walking their hiring. So that way you can manage your payrolls, your labor costs without laying off workers. And if you don't lay off workers, if we don't see significant layoffs across the economy, I, I don't think we get a recession because you need that layoff, those layoffs to go back to what we were saying earlier about psychology to scare people 
saying, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose my job, or I lost my job, or my neighbor lost their job, or my kids lost their job, and I got to help them out. And then you pull back on your spending, and that's a recession. You know, everyone running into the bunker and stop spending. But if you don't get the layoffs, I, I, you know, it's harder to. You can get there, I suppose, but it's a lot harder to get there. And that's 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 a fundamental difference. What I'm just described in the labor market, job market, than any other time that I'm aware of, you know, historically. So very, very different kind of uh, you know backdrop. I, I can go on, but that that's that's a, I think a very clear reason why I think the economy is resilient and can be able to kind of navigate through some of these hits without going into a full-blown outright downturn. Does that make sense? That's super helpful. I'm just curious. Yeah, it, it does. I'm just curious what other economists, as so many people are forecasting a recession, see differently. Well, okay. I, I, can, I can do that too, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, let's see the devil's advocate side. I, I can do that too. Let's do yeah. it. Well, all right. I mean, it goes back to psychology. And then what happens is the economy weakens, it weakens, it weakens. You start getting more layoffs in the, in the construction trades, which we haven't seen yet, you know, for example. Uh, you see more manufacturing layoffs. Labor market starts to ease up. Unemployment starts to rise. And then people, some businesses say, oh, maybe it isn't going to be so hard to find workers and it isn't going to be so hard to retain them. And by the way, I'm really worried that, you know, I've got these high labor costs and no business. I'm losing money, cash flow, and I'm going to cut. And they then the layoffs become self-reinforcing. You know, they, people see layoffs and more open, uh, more people out there looking for work. They become less concerned about their tight labor. It kind of feeds on itself, and then you get the layoffs, and then you get the pullback in spending, and then you get the recession. So, it you know, it's kind of one of the metaphor. I'm not sure what it is. Is like you're bending a piece of metal. That's the economy. You know, the, all these pressures that you know they're bending, bending, bending. And I'm saying it's not going to break, but you get to a place, some point, it breaks, right? That's and it. That's, that's kind of how I think about it, you know, in a kind of a metaphysical sense. Okay, great. That that was good devil's advocate. I appreciate it. Yeah, there you it. go. It's, it's I told you I could to do see it. both sides. And, <laughs> I mean, obviously, I mean, I think as an economist, you probably say this all the time, like what you're describing is you're telling us what you think is the most probable scenarios, but it's not like other futures are impossible. There are many po- possible futures. And again, the, the risks here are very high, uh, you know, uncomfortably high. So yeah, in fact, that's what I do for a living. It's 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 about kind of the the scenario in the middle of the distribution of possible outcomes. But for most thinking business people, it's about it's about the whole panoply of possible outcomes and how do I think about navigating in those different worlds and what kind of probability should I be attaching to those world uh, to those different worlds. So it's you know it's it's not about one scenario. We all kind of fixate on that. It's about this this distribution of possible outcomes. I, I love that. I think that's so important for people to understand that when anyone gives their any uh, you know honest person gives their opinion about what might happen in the future not just saying this is definitely going to happen or, you know, this is this is the way it is. You know, people are trying to understand the different possible outcomes and tell you what they think the most po- probable outcome is. But obviously, anyone who's honest knows that their forecasting is, un, you know, not always going to be correct. We all do that. We all forecast something. People say, I don't like to forecast. Well, you're, everybody on the planet's forecasting all the time. And that's exactly, you don't, we don't, people don't think about it, but that's exactly what they're doing. They got, oh, this is what I think is going to happen, but you know, it could be this, it could be that. And I'm going to think, think about the range of possibilities and how I would behave and navigate given those different possible outcomes. So everyone is kind of sort of doing that. Economists just make that, ex- that process explicit as, as explicit as they can. Well, you've done my job for me and uh, done a great transition into the last thing I want to talk about which is, of course, the real estate market. And you've hit a bit on commercial real estate and how you think at least funding for new projects might get hit. But I'm curious, what what are some of the scenarios or, or mo- more probable scenarios you see both for commercial and the residential real estate markets? Well, I think the single family side, uh, where I spend a lot of my energy, uh, you know, obviously that's gotten crushed in terms of housing demand. Home sales are back to kind of levels you don't see since in the, in the middle of the pandemic or in the financial crisis. Uh, uh, it, it, you know, ha- single family housing is in, already in recession. 
Uh, I will say, I, I think the worst is over in terms of sales. I don't think they're coming back fast until affordability is restored. And that requires some combination of lower rates, higher incomes, and probably some house price declines. So I do expect more house price declines here over the next couple of years. In fact, our baseline kind of in the middle of distribution is for a 10% roughly peak to trough decline in, in house prices uh, You know, from, from the last summer through probably the end of 2024. So I think single family, the worst on sales, and we're getting pretty close to the worst on construction, not quite there yet, uh, but we got more to go in terms of house prices. Multifamily, as you know, has been you know rip-roaring great, um, but I do think it's going to have a comeuppance here. You know, It's already started in terms of rents because you have more supply coming into the market. Demand has been hurt because rents are just too high. Uh, it, it not only is it unaffordable to own a home, it's unaffordable to rent as well at this point. And so you have a weaker demand and more supply. Vacancies are going to start to move north, and that's going to keep pressure on rents. And I do think we're going to see some meaningful weakening in new supply down the road, given what it just said about uh, underwriting and, and tightening of lending. And I do expect some price declines. Prices are pretty high. And I do expect, expect uh, some, some adjustment there. But on the, uh, on the rest of CRE, you know, it, it, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but I think it's pretty fair to say office has got a big problem, particularly big city, urban you know, those towers, uh, you know, uh, remote works is here to stay. It, it's, it's not going away. It, it, you know, there's been some pen swinging back of that pendulum, but as technology improves and as new companies form and optimize around remote work and they will not optimize around an office space, you know, we're going to see weakening demand. And by the way, going back to my point about demographics, one of the point, one of the, uh, uh, implications of that, very little job growth, you know, going forward, we're going to get you know, you've been, we've been used to 100, 200, 300K per month. You, I think everyone needs to get used to 50K per month, 25K per month. And that, that goes to absorption, right, of office space. So I think office has got some serious adjusting to do, particularly, again, in, in, again I'm paying with a broad brush, but particularly in those big urban centers. Retail is centered in those urban areas. They got, they got problems because they cater to all those office workers. You know, I think industrial uh, uh, probably, uh, you know, that actually got a big lift during the pandemic because of all the movement of goods and services. Yeah, I think it's still going to be fine, but probably somewhat diminished on the other side of all that. But generally speaking, I think real estate's going to be, uh, in terms of uh, residential and CRE, is got some adjusting to do. There's going to be some adjustment here over the next uh, couple, three years in terms of everything, you know, prices and rents and everything, uh, some some further adjusting to do. It just depends on the property type, location, just how significant that adjustment will be. That's, that's, there's, that's a whole podcast in itself, Dave. That's, there's a, it's there's many a lot podcasts. To, yeah. Well, it keeps as you, me as in as you job. Yes. It definitely does. But it's, it's, uh, it's super helpful to know. And yeah, commercial is its own thing, but I think the majority of our, our listeners are mostly involved in the residential space. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. It sounds like you think, you know, we are in a correction, but it's not like a bottom falling out kind of situation where prices are going to uh, go into some sort of nosedive, um, more single digits, maybe 10-ish percent declines. I, yeah, no, I don't I don't think, I mean, I, I would say that uh, the, the best of times are over. I mean, those were, you know, pretty darn good times not too long ago. In terms of like price appreciation? Yeah, and rents, everything was going north, you know, uh, and- that's over. Uh, you got a lot more supply coming into the, into the market. Vacancy rates have hit bottom or start to rise. But I, I would agree that, uh, and I think you're going to have opportunity. You know, if you have cash, you should because I think prices will come down for lots of multifamily rental property, and you'll have an opportunity to step in at some point. But I do think in the longer run, it's a, going to be a good investment uh, because I don't. I you know fundamentally what really matters is home ownership. You know, and I'm talking now through the business cycle, ten years, twenty years out. If you look, home ownership is going to be under pressure, so the home ownership rate is going to decline. Which flip of that means, you know, higher rent, higher proportion of the population is going to rent. You know, over the next ten, twenty years. So I think that fundamental support to the market will prevail over a long period of time. But in the near term, you know, you know there's some adjusting to do. But again, I, if you have cash. You know, I, I view that as an opportunity because prices will, prices have gotten way too high. I don't know, but I I look at a lot of these, you know, properties 
do, if you do the kind of the basic Excel spreadsheet thing, you couldn't make it work really. No. You had to really stretch the imagination. To, you couldn't make convince a bank to that they that you well maybe they're uh, you, tell me where that bank was. So <laughs> I'm not sure what, yeah. they're, what they're doing now. But but now you got so once prices come back in, then some of these you know spreadsheets will start working again. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You're looking in commercial where the cap rates are higher than or lower than interest rates on a risk-free asset. You know, like yeah. you can do better on a 10-year treasury, even two, two-year treasury, yeah. than on buying a multifamily. And the treasury is a lot less risk than the multifamily. So something has to has, has to change there. I totally well, agree. Well, as, as we know, Dave, looking at the bank system, you have to sell it before it matures. That could be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's the lesson. That's, that's the, the lesson, lesson we've learned. Uh, maybe, yeah. Or please hedge it, you know? So. Yeah, yes, please. Yeah. Um, the last question I want to ask you before we let you get out of here is you said something about mortgage rates and that, you know, bond yields have dropped over the last couple months or weeks, excuse me. Um, and uh, mortgage rates, you said, hadn't declined as much as you would have thought. So I'm curious if you could just give us a, your, your take on mortgage rates right now and where they might head over the course of the year. Yeah, the the, the mortgage rate, the 30-year fix is roughly equal to, in the way I think about it, the 10-year treasury yield plus a spread. Uh, the spread is a function of lots of stuff, you know, origination costs, servicing costs, uh, if it's a Fannie Freddie loan, a G fee. And then there's also the compensation that the investor in the mortgage needs for prepayment risk, you know, the risk that they get uh, paid back early. And that prepayment risk is elevated when you have a lot of volatility in rates. And you have, as we know, a lot of volatility in rates. So that spread is very wide. So the 10-year Treasury yield today is 3.5%. Uh, the 30-year uh, fix is six and 660, something like that. That's a 310 yes. yep. basis point spread. Typically, long run, it's 150, 175 basis points. So that gives you a sense of magnitude. It's going to stay elevated like that in, as long as the environment remains as uncertain as it is until the, it's clear the Fed is done raising rates and that we know where, when it's going to start coming back down, they're going to start coming back down to earth. So I, I expect six and a half, seven, you know, here, you know, until that happens, I, that won't happen for another three, six, nine, maybe 12 months. It eventually will. But I'll, I'll leave you with in the long run, when everything kind of settles down and where things go to where they should be, which by what by the way never happens, but let's, let's theoretically <laughs> let's just go with that. Thirty-year fixed rate mortgages should be five and a half percent. That's where they should be going. So they're they're elevated now by a, ha a, a hundred or one hundred and fifty basis points, something like that. That's that spread I talked about. Does that make sense? What I just said? yes, it does. Yeah. And just reinforcing for anyone who is waiting for those three or four percent interest rates to come back, you're going to be waiting a long time. It could happen, but that's a recession, and you know, then that, then yeah. you're in that recession scenario that it's possible. Yeah. But yeah. Okay, great. Well, Mark, thank you so much for being here. This has been fantastic. I learned a lot, and uh, this has been a lot of fun. If anyone wants to learn more about you or follow your work, where should they do that? They can go to economy.com. Uh, I have that URL. I bought it before I sold my company to Moody's. Uh, so we've had that, that URL for a long time. And uh, you can learn a lot about us there. And we've got this cool website called Economic View. Uh, uh -huh. And you know, feel free. Oh, I did want to plug one thing. Yes. Uh, inside Eco my own podcast. Dave, I got to have you on my podcast. I got the oh, podcast. Yeah. I would love to. Inside Economics. Yeah, you should take a take a listen. Uh it's the funnest thing I do all week. Can you just tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, it's uh you got to be a little nerdy uh cuz it is economist and I do bring on like last week I had Aaron Klein on. He's a, um, a very well respected uh fellow of uh, of economic studies at Brookings Institution that focuses on financial institutions and markets. He was the, you know, he was the chief economist of the Senate Banking Committee. He was in Obama's Treasury, so he lived through the. He he actually did a lot of work on TARP. You remember the bailout plan? Yep. So he course. knows banking inside and out. In fact, he was he he's a he's a really interesting guy. But when he started reading from the 1933 Banking Act, you know, <laughs> I go, hey, Aaron, what what the heck, you know, Mark, you're not selling this podcast. Yeah, no, no, you got to be. Hey, I got a great statistics game that people love. Um, okay, <laughs> but great guests, a lot of fun. People people enjoy it. Yeah, people enjoy it. I, at least I do. It doesn't matter. It's almost a die. I don't really care what people think. No, that that's the kind of stuff I I really like. And you know, I think. We've all learned over the last few years how much 
economics matters and how much it impacts everyday life and things that you don't even know that it impacts. So um, learning about these things is really helpful and uh, I will definitely be tuning in. Well, Mark, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. And hopefully we'll have you on again sometime. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Mark Zandi, Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, for joining us for this episode of On the Market. I hope you all learned as much as I did. I found that show super fascinating. I think Mark does a really good job giving context and backgrounds about his opinions. And, you know, I think that's really important when you listen to anyone specifically and particularly economists. You know, everyone has opinions. And as we talked about in the show, Mark or anyone, me, whoever else is talking, is really trying to give you the thing they think is most probable to happen. They're not saying this is definitely going to happen or this is the right thing to do. This is the wrong thing to do. They're basing their information and opinions on probabilities. And I think Mark does a really good job of explaining his thinking and some of the context that goes into why he thinks certain things are really important and which indicators are really important to follow, which ones are less important to. So I found this super interesting and very helpful in adding some context to my own thinking about the economy and my own thinking about my real estate portfolio. If you have any questions, thoughts, or feedback about this episode, we always really appreciate that. I know we say that, but we really do. So if you have any comments, you can always find me on Bigger Pockets or on Instagram where I'm at the Data Deli. If you're watching this on YouTube, make sure to leave us a comment or a question there. We do our best to get back to you. Or if you found this one particularly interesting, we always appreciate a review on either Spotify or Apple. It really does mean a lot to us. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you for the next episode next week of On the Market. On the Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Research by Pooja Jindal. And a big thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show On the Market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. Investing in small multifamily properties is probably the most popular niche in the entire Bigger Pockets community, and there's a good reason for that. You can put as little as 3.5% down and own up to four units. So just think about that for a second. You can house hack where you live in one of the units, but in addition to having a place to live, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month. You have four kitchens and bathrooms that you could add value to to build equity. You could also turn one or more of the properties into a short-term rental or a medium-term rental. And all this, what I'm describing here, is just one transaction. But of course, the question is, where do you find one of these small multifamily properties that you can afford? Which markets and which deals are best for you? How about after you close? How do you manage it? Optimize it. Keep scaling and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants. These are all great questions. And luckily for you, they're going to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient, great strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. I'll see you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.